Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadow's weekly threat intelligence podcast that covers the latest trends and stories in the cyber world. My name is Alex, as per usual, your host, and today I'm actually joined with a very solid crew. So I think for the first time, we have a pretty full house. So good old regulars, Casey and Charles, how are you both doing? Hey. We good? We good about yourself? Good. I'm doing good. I'm happy to have so many friends on today. Um, we also have Alec. How are you? I'm excited you're going to be joining us a little bit more frequently now. That's always good. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. And of course, last but not least, we have Mr. Rick Holland. How are you doing, Rick? Certainly least, and I'm doing well. <laughs> we're, always, uh, we're always very grateful to have your expertise and your uh, witty comments on the podcast. So it's always a pleasure <laughs> to have you join. So I think we should just jump right into it because we have a couple of great news stories and uh, cyber events to cover this week. And I think the first one that stands out to me is something that we can cover. And I know, again, plays into the whole ransomware, ransomware, ransomware. We always talk about ransomware, but we actually had a discussion and we found a couple of unique and interesting angles to this specific incident. So uh, Garmin was um, affected by a ransomware attack a couple of days ago now. Um, and the story behind that was a little bit unique in the sense that they didn't outright come out and say that it was ransomware when they had a bunch of system downtime. You know, customers were unable to access their Garmin devices. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more as well. But Charles, uh, what actually happened with Garmin? You want to give us the details? So yeah, so uh, Garmin got ransomware. Uh, and uh, what kind of was the big interesting thing, though, was it, it was uh, allegedly um, Evil Corp, and uh, they're most well-known for their use of Drydex. Uh, and kind of what was interesting about that whole thing, like you said, was that they, they didn't initially you know, ad admit to it or, or kind of disclose that they had been breached potentially or anything like that. Uh, there was just a lot of people complaining about uh, downtime, and then uh, a lot of reporting basically said that they, they initially discovered... Uh, the, the first sample of the uh, wasted locker, which was what was used, was uploaded from Taiwan. Uh, and then initially, like, they started trying to shut down everything in their data centers and, and all of their affected areas. They just started shutting things down and were saying that they were just going down for maintenance. Uh, and then as it kind of appeared to be longer and longer, they finally disclosed that they had been uh, the, you know, the victim of a targeted attack. Uh, and when you read through a lot of the reporting, a lot of the stuff shows that it was just specifically, again, like uh, that's with Wasted Locker, it's typically customized and targeted for one specific victim and it's not a specific kind of, oh, we're just going to scan for whatever we find and put ransomware on whatever system we get. They, they typically will do a lot of recon and, and make sure that they customize their configuration to for maximum damage in one specific target environment. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that was kind of the, the big interesting thing. Uh, for that, and then there also kind of gets gets into the legalities of, uh, as as some of us are well aware, you know, uh, Evil Corp's been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury, uh, and so there kind of raises some some issues there of uh, legality on whether or not they ended up paying them to get the decryption key, or you know, was it a third party that paid, or someone that's not affected by U.S. sanctions, or or anything like that. So there's kind of you know and some some questions there around that that haven't been really cleared up uh, that can lead to some interesting discussion in the future, I think. 
Yeah, a, a lot of times when a company is impacted by ransomware, they won't outright come out and say that it is ransomware. But I think that there are some obvious um, things that, that always pop out. And at least if you're familiar with you know, what ransomware attacks look like, um, they stand out as being pretty obvious as, as ransomware attacks. And actually with, uh, with Garmin, some of their employees, I think, came out on social media, right, Charles? And they were saying that it was Wasted Locker while this was all still up in the air, which is a little bit weird. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, it was definitely weird. Like a lot of the initial reporting when you'd see on, on some stuff was that like Garmin, just they, they weren't coming out making any official statements. But yeah, then there might be an employee on social media or an employee reaching out to, to a media source saying like, hey, we were the victim of, of this. And, and there didn't seem to be any kind of clear, consistent messaging from from anybody uh for for a while uh initially so it highlights the pr response and like planning like we've talked about in the past tabletop exercises and knowing what your pr game plan is having authorized spokespeople for the organization that can come out and deliver a clear and consistent message one of a comment i made on twitter this week that got a fair amount of uh, likes and comments uh Garmin came out and said that, uh, of course, you know, assured customers that there is no indication that their data was compromised. Um, my follow-up was there's never an indication until there's an indication. It may have been purely ransomware, but everyone knows incident response takes time. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. So, I, you know, so many times there's platitudes given to customers and things like that. I think the, the right strategy is to try to be as honest and communicate a single kind of message when you can. Otherwise, you're just going to shoot yourselves in the foot and make it much worse than than it already is. Yeah. And I think, like you said, Rick, I think with incident response, especially with regards to things like ransomware, there's not one uh, guideline that every company can follow. It's going to be different for every single organization. And you have these parallels. Um, so, so it's going to be different for every single organization. And I always think back to, um, I think it was December of 2019 when, when Norsk Hydro was hit by ransomware, uh, Locker Goga. They took a very, very um, transparent approach to it with their PR efforts, and they were keeping everyone in the loop. I think some of their C-levels like, went on a, a meeting immediately in broadcasting, telling everyone, all right, this is what happened, this is what we know, this is what we're doing. And then sometimes you have companies that are, take a different approach and just keep everything on the down low until they know more so that they can be confident as to what they're saying. But I think it's pretty important to keep people in the loop, especially whether or not their data was potentially compromised, because the sooner people know that it has been, the sooner they can take action to kind of contain that on the, on the user side of things. I do think one, you know, if the, if the leaking from internal employees, you know, is, is accurate, I mean, that is something that, you know, listeners need to think about in their own programs. Like you may, you may or may not do something that might raise ethical questions with your staff and, you know, you need to, to be in tune there and be prepared if people don't think you're doing the right things that they may find their way to talk to Brian Krebs or, you know, whatever, whatever the outlet is, but that needs to be part of your PR response plan is how are you going to inform your own employees of what's going on? There may have been work going on that they weren't communicated out to the employees and, and, and there's only so much information you can give in an investigation, but it just illustrates the complexity of this. Uh, key thing is don't make it worse. You know, I wonder how much the, the insurance companies play into that. Do they kind of tell them to, you know, keep it shut? I know, like you mentioned, Alex, the, the industry standard is trying to be as much like as transparent as possible. And once you have that information, releasing it. And I, I saw quite a few, 
gripes and complaints with Garmin in this this case when they weren't very transparent. They were kind of taking their time, and and so you know it's kind of interesting to to wonder you know as we see ransomware continually being prominent within the threat landscape, how those insurance companies are are playing into that reporting. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the landscape now looks way different than it did even just, you know, eight months ago. Things are always changing. Different standards are always being adopted by by companies. It's an ever-shifting landscape. Well, you should, I mean, go back to the tabletop exercise, which seems like every other time I'm on, we'll talk about it. But the, ins- you know, to, to, to Alex's point, like you should have your insurance company as a part of your tabletop exercise, or at least have your policy and know what your playbook's going to be you know, when do you need to bring regulators in? When do you need to bring your insurance provider in? You know, I've heard stories of companies that have um, invalidated their insurance policy because they did pay a ransom um, and they weren't working through their insurer. So you need to know what that policy is. Um, and more and more, I think you probably need to have the right expectation on what your insurance policy is going to get. Likely it's going to cover your incident response and your PR, you know, services type of component. And that's that's probably a best case for you, but the insurers are also looking for opportunities. You know, if someone breaks, uh, breaches a contract that they don't have to pay that out. So absolutely need to be looking at those contracts. Was it the, the ransom that they requested a pretty high amount? I mean, I guess it's pretty high compared to what we've seen uh, recently, but you know, it's kind of the ongoing trend of ransomware. I think it was what, 10 million. Yeah. Yep. $10 million. That's becoming a standard now, isn't it? Especially when you have these big companies that are being targeted that likely have the kind of insurance that will be able to allow them to make those payments as opposed to, you know, back in the day. I say back in the day, it was really only like two and a half years ago. Things like WannaCry, right? Those demands were, you know, in a couple of hundreds and those were affecting individuals. And if you go back even further to when the ransomware first came onto the, came onto the landscape, you know, they were demanding you to go out and get a gift card for like 20 bucks and give them the code. So a lot has changed from, from then to the tens and hundreds of millions that these ransomware operators are demanding nowadays. <laughs> and I mean, as long as those payments get made, they're just going to be emboldened to keep asking for more. So I wonder if that's ever going to plateau at some point. Like, is there a limit? I don't know. That's an open-ended question. Yeah, and, and I think too, it kind of also goes back to with, with the sanctions that have been placed against evil corp as well i mean it, it, if there's not any kind of investigation or anything done to kind of clarify like how exactly did they get the decryption key back uh like what methods were used uh, i mean that are, is there going to be any kind of you know fallout from that like uh and i think it just shows a difficulty in trying to punish some of these international you know groups that, that do cybercrime because it's just they're already in non-extradition countries and they're able to do things and face minimal repercussion in the countries that they are operating in. And, uh, and then they turn around and the, what legal remedies we do have, uh, like in the United States, uh, if, if people can violate those with minimal effect as well, I mean, it kind of makes those appear, appear toothless and, and kind of emboldens them to kind of keep doing what they're doing as well. So, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think lessons learned is that it's difficult and there's not one, you know, golden solution to, to everything. And I mean, ransomware isn't the only kind of, you know, it's, it's easy to think about because it's in our faces all of the time, but it's, it's important to remember that ransomware isn't the only type of malware that's currently out there, even, even though it may seem like it is because it gets all the, the media highlights. But you also have other types of malware that I think 
Casey, if you want to fill us in on something else that happened this week uh, with, with QSnatch malware. So what exactly is, is QSnatch? What's, what's the history there and what, what happened with QSnatch this week? So QSnatch is a strain of malware that was first observed infecting um, network-attached storage devices back in 2014. Uh, and this was specifically with a device maker called QNAP. So go back or go forward five more years, back in October 2019, the German CERT team um, released a bulletin warning users that there was a significant increase in these infections. And I think it got up to 7,000 different devices, and that was in Germany alone. So after that bulletin, QNAP actually released a mitigation plan. So that involved users going back and patching their devices, you know, the usual stuff that we hear. So, so the alert was actually jointly issued, right, by, by both the, the CISA as well as the, the NCSC. So why, why does this matter? I mean, even with other types of bulletins and alerts, you know, you have the FBI and other cyber agencies that are releasing these kinds of things simultaneously. So why, why does that matter? Why is that so important? Yeah, definitely. So since 2019, QSnatch infection has increased significantly, and we're looking at about 62,000 infected devices worldwide, and that's just since June 2020. So this new alert, the Join Alert, it focuses on the most recent campaign, and that comes with a ton of enhanced and robust features. And, and so that includes a CGI password logger. So that pretty much installs a fake admin dashboard and then collects different authentication input. Um, there's also the uh, credential scraper and then a secure shell backdoor and then also various exfiltration capabilities and then a web shell functionality for remote access. So do we have any kind of information like did they release any kind of information that talks about how the infection actually works like what type of attack vector that QSnatch uses? So right now we don't really know <laughs> what attack vector is used for QSnatch infection. That's always very very settling. Yeah, really, really cool, right? Um, but once it does gain foothold, um, the QSnatch injects malware into the firmware, and then it even blocks future updates. So it just intends to live there forever. <laughs> so uh, CISA and NCSC, they urge in not just organizations, but individuals as well to update their devices to the most recent version to avoid possible infection. Um, the mitigation steps are actually listed on QNAP's website. But if you unfortunately already have an infected device, uh, the only way to actually remove the malware is to perform a complete factory reset and then upgrade to the latest version. It doesn't sound very easier. Yeah, no, Fast. unfortunately, it, it just throws a wrench into all of the plans. So going back to like why uh, an attacker would want to target these network attached storages, uh, why, why is that important? What could an attacker gain access to on a NAS drive. So NAS drives hold a lot of sensitive information. So depending on what organizations actually store on that drive is dependent on what attackers can actually get. Uh, whenever they do try to exfiltrate various information, that's mostly specific to different configuration files and log files. So if you can imagine what kind of information can be pulled from that, it could be pretty valuable. And so for example, when, when an attacker gains access to, you know, uh, a company's sensitive information, they can do pretty much whatever they want with it, right? Whether that's uh, using it for um, their own financial gain or using it for espionage purposes if they're linked to uh, a government agency or something like that. Um, but a lot of times uh, these types of leaks are, in fact, 
financially motivated. Um, if an attacker gains access to sensitive information, they see that there's value in it, then you know, why not make some money off it? And one of the threat actors that we've seen being pretty active over the past couple of months or, or weeks even um, is, is Shiny Hunters. And we talked quite a lot about Shiny Hunters over the past couple of weeks, but there was something else that happened this week that's a little bit more significant. So Alec, do you want to fill us in with what happened with Shiny Hunters? What did they do this week? Yeah, yeah. So we actually got the stage two. So back in May of this year, they went on Empire and they were advertising about nine different databases to various organizations. Uh, and that was something they called stage one. So it was obviously imminent of a stage two. And so now we get the follow-up here and stage two has been released over these past two weeks. So they took to raid forums uh, and they pretty much just dumped for free all those databases that they advertised in May. Uh, so there was nine. And then additionally, they advertised quite a few more on top of that. So a total of 26 companies were impacted, totaling 405 million credentials. And so when they, when they were asked why they just let it all out for free, they said that, uh, I just thought I made enough money, so I leaked it for everyone's benefit, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, and it kind of goes to, to speak about what their potential motivations are. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned initially, their perceived motivation, they're attempting to monetize the credentials that they had access to. From there, you know, it just kind of seems like uh, now that maybe they're changing their, their motives or maybe they're, they really want to establish their name within the threat landscape. And so instead of trying to monetize that information, because, again, this wasn't just like, you know, a couple months later, we haven't got enough traction. We're just releasing this for free. They also released a lot of information that hadn't been public yet. So a lot of databases that were unknown to the, the threat landscape are the the threat intelligence community like Drizzly was one of the new ones of the companies that were impacted. And so I, I kind of wanted to draw back to a parallel. And the, the one thing that I could think about was um, the scene in the first Fast and the Furious, and hopefully this isn't too far back. So when Brian Spilner first comes <laughs> on the scene and he's first racing and he doesn't have any cash. Um, so the buy-in to race was $3,000. And he says, uh, you know, I don't have any cash, but here's the pink slip to my car. The winner we'll get my car. But if I win, I get the cash and I get the respect. And he says to some people, the respect's more important. Uh, and so I think that's what's happening here. I think that shiny hunters, while they're not necessarily a new threat actor, I think they're really just trying to establish their name within the threat landscape. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're seeing now. So where, where does the rock come into play here? <laughs> a lot. Yeah, that's a, a mini mini. That's a yeah, way. A way, way. We're talking old school, aren't we? So, with um with these uh with these numbered data breaches, um, what kind of data was exposed, and and what does that mean for the organizations that it impacts? Yeah. So it just looked like uh, passwords and and credentials for the users of each each organization. So, um, you know, obviously, if you see an organization in there, uh, a lot of this is public now, so you can kind of take a look and see those organizations that are mentioned. And if you happen to be a user of that organization, definitely recommend resetting your password there and then change any of the passwords that you may reuse across other um, various third parties. Uh, but really just, you know, what it could mean for the organizations is just having an understanding of, of how they were able to gain access, uh, and which is actually a pretty interesting topic as well. 
Um, so shiny hunters, they've been targeting, they're, they're going out on these various social media platforms, LinkedIn, uh, various other ones to identify developers of their target organizations. And so once they identify a developer, they set up a pretty legitimate phishing uh, email that tells them that, hey, there's some suspicious activity going on with your, or some suspicious API calls from your GitHub repository. And so they send them this email, and of course it links them to a GitHub phishing page where they're gonna go ahead and harvest you know, GitHub credentials and those developers, um, you know, once they put that information in, they basically give access to Shiny Hunters, access to their private GitHub repository. And so that's how, uh, they were able to gain access to all these these organizations, or at least that's how it's been reported uh, right now. And so it's definitely an interesting uh, avenue of attack. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of these elaborate social engineering schemes that require a lot of prior reconnaissance lately, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that continues to work, so I imagine we'll keep seeing it. Yeah, it keeps have, highlighting. Uh, Go ahead, Rick. I was going to say I have one final recommendation as well, and that's just to live your life quarter mile at a time. <laughs> I take that's it that's my a man, quote. Dominic Toretto. Dominic Toretto. You should have known that. That's right. That's it. Also, well, Alex it, likes it don't Pokemon matter if you and win then... by an inch or a mile. <laughs> winning is winning. What does that have to do with Pokemon, Casey? Well, I was just saying you might not get it because you spend most of your time, you know, reading up on Pokemon and stuff like that, and maybe not necessarily, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not cool enough for uh, the old school Fast and Furious movies. I, I can't say I've coolest. seen the earlier ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, The Rock doesn't come until later. Dominic Toretto or Vin Diesel is definitely up there in the first few. I think I saw the most recent one, and then before that, I don't even think I saw a single one. So I'm not the best person <laughs> to talk to about fast and furious references um but i think that um shiny hunters thing you know it highlights that the the weakest link in a lot of organizations can be humans right exploiting human vulnerabilities can be just as devastating if not more than exploiting uh, the technical vulnerabilities that we are uh, so very that we worry so much about so if you want to read more about shiny hunters and what they've been up to be sure to check out this week's uh Insum and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. And there's also a blog, a piece of research that we published this week as well that talks about the, uh, the impact of COVID-19 on the uh, shadow travel industry. So that's a follow-up to a blog that we published uh, a couple of months ago about the dark web travel agents. And so it's a revisiting of that very same topic, checking in on some of the threat actors that we looked into the previous time. So the link to that will also be in the show notes. So check those out if you want to. And I think that just about wraps it up. Does anyone have anything else to say? No? I think that's good then. Yeah, Thanks. yeah. Actually, uh, I do. I just randomly came up with another quote to leave everybody with. Oh, Life's yay. Simple. You make choices and you don't look back. That's did you just Google Tokyo did, Drift. Did you just Google quotations from that? Actually, that I did, but my wife <laughs> is a huge Fast and Furious fan. And we binged the uh, Blu-ray block uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. We binged the entire series on Blu-ray. So unfortunately, I know far more about Fast and Furious than anyone should. I love glad, that, Rick. I'm glad this is why one person got my reference. <laughs> this is why we like having you on the podcast, Rick. Because <laughs> you what watched the whole series you? of Fast and the Furious. Yeah, I mean, we'd be lost. All right. 
Thanks everyone for joining and I'll see you guys next week. Bye friendos. Bye. Ciao.